Hey, really glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have two good martinis to close out the week for you today, as well as one that's both bad and crazy. Um, but, you know, two good martinis heading into a holiday weekend. Very, very good. Uh, let's start, actually, Jim, with the New York Times. And we're going to say nice things about the New York Times twice today, which is really bizarre. But first of all, kudos to the Times for even printing this op-ed. But it's what's in the op-ed that's even uh, more uh, interesting and uh, qualifies for the good martini. This is written by a woman named Laura Adkins, who self-identifies as a liberal who lives in New York City. She says, I lived in New York for a decade without fearing for my personal safety. But in recent months, I have been terrified. In May, I filed for and received a temporary order of protection against a former partner. More than 5 million American women alive today have reported being threatened with a gun, shot, or shot by an intimate partner, and more than half of the perpetrators of mass shootings in the past decade shot a family member, intimate partner, or former intimate partner as part of their rampage. Every month, 70 women on average are shot and killed by an intimate partner, but states like mine make it legally cumbersome to defend yourself with a legally purchased handgun. If my life is ever in danger, I want to be able to protect myself with a gun. And now, thanks to the Supreme Court's decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, I am one step closer to carrying one. I understand why some of my fellow liberals would like to ban guns outright, but guns are already prevalent among those who don't follow the rules. Despite strong gun laws in my state and city, illegal trafficking abounds. The reality is that in addition to preventing abusers from owning guns, we must empower vulnerable citizens to protect themselves. And obviously, Jim, there's a a big debate over exactly how to prevent uh the wrong people from having weapons. But this is a situation that uh, I don't want to flippantly uh, categorize as here's a liberal being mugged by reality. But this is a a situation where a lot of folks on the left think about this in theory. And some folks on the right probably think about the issue in theory as well. But when there's somebody who's actually, you know, in a position to hurt you, you want to be able to defend yourself. And thankfully, the Second Amendment is there. Greg, life has many joys, and I hope everyone who's listening has many joys in their life. But boy, when you hear something you believe coming out of the mouth of someone else on the other side of the aisle, someone who doesn't always think the same way as you, someone who defines themselves as ideologically opposed to you, and all of a sudden, it just either suddenly or maybe all along, but they have this, they start saying the exact same things you've been. Boy, isn't that a delight? Doesn't that just make you feel good? Like, okay, all right, okay, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for recognizing this. Look, I hope Laura Adkins feels safe uh, from now until the end of her days. And the idea of having a, you know, needing to file a order of protection against a former partner, that can be terrifying. Uh, you know, I'm sure she's, you know, looking up over her shoulder all the time. That's, you know, no one should have to go through something like that. Um, for a long time, very early in life, I opposed, uh, I, I supported gun control. Um, I didn't feel, you know, didn't grow up with a gun in the house, uh, lived around the corner from a police station, uh, didn't really feel particularly threatened by serious violence and, you know, anything beyond bullies in school and stuff like that. So I didn't, you know, like, oh, why, I don't need a gun. Why would anyone else? And then, you know, a little later in life, you begin to realize, okay, how about the young woman who has to walk back to her car late at night uh, from her, you know, night classes at a college or something like that? How about the guy who has to work the midnight shift at 7-Eleven in a bad neighborhood where you know there's a chance somebody's going to try to rob the place? Um, how about somebody, again, who has a, uh, someone who has a stalker, someone who has, uh, someone who has a violent obsession with them or something like that? Those are the people 
who need the Second Amendment and who need the ability to legally purchase a firearm the most. It's very easy to imagine, you, know, you look at mass shooters and, and you know, we've, we can look at this and we you know, gasp in horror and say, how did this person ever get their hands on a gun? There were so many evident signs. This person was, you know, a ticking time bomb. This person was a threat. Um, when the, you know, sometimes gun owners live down to that Yosemite Sam stereotype and go, oh my God, that nut job, that, that lunatic, that, no, he shouldn't have a gun. No, but how do all these people who feel threatened, who, who feel like, look, if the cops there, great. They, they prefer to rely on law enforcement. But as we all know, law enforcement can't be everywhere. They can't get there instantaneously. The day that happens, we can, re- we can revisit this topic. But until then, for these people who feel threatened, the ability to have a firearm is one opportunity. And look, is it guaranteed to work? No. And I don't think anyone has any illusions that these, you know, having a firearm will guarantee you will never be a victim of violent crime. But it gives you a chance. It gives you the possibility of defending yourself against someone who seeks to harm you in a very serious way. So um, this is a great op-ed. I think it is honest. It is raw. Uh, I'd like to think it's going to persuade uh, the you know generally left of center readers of the New York Times. I don't know if it's going to, but I don't think that uh, this is someone who, you know, uh, Laura Adkins is someone who you can easily uh, dismiss. I don't think this is someone who you can... Um, cast as being uh, not a good citizen or someone who shouldn't have a gun or something like that. And I don't think you can characterize her as someone who hasn't thought this through seriously and, and great length. So um, it is a it is a great to see the New York Times at least having this on the op-ed page, recognizing that there's another side of this debate, recognizing this is not someone who can be easily uh, demonized or stereotyped or, or something like that. Um, this is, you know, this is the reality of gun ownership in this country. And that, you know, as much as gun control advocates might like to believe, oh, and once we do this, it won't, uh, once we do this, there won't be any crime or something like that. The other interesting angle on this, just in the last week, and this is kind of a, uh, a very bad, um, a, a bad aspect of the, this is a good martini, but what prompted it is there. So there was up in New, New York City, there was this really, um, horrific shooting of a young mother, a woman named Ezia Johnson. Um, apparently Wednesday night, she was out walking her baby in a stroller when a hooded gunman approached her from behind and fired a single shot into her head. She is pronounced dead at a hospital not long after. This has apparently freaked out people in New York City. Um, that it, you know, the location of it, because it's the, uh, you know, Upper East Side, it's not too far from Central Park. Um, there is apparently the idea that possibly the, the gunman knew her, that this was not um, a random killing that this was a potential incident of domestic violence. Still terrifying, but people, the idea that, you know, somebody who in this, you know, relatively good neighborhood, just walking her child in a stroller could get ex- pretty much executed out of nowhere, no warning, boom, um, really kind of shocked people who had felt like they had gotten acclimated to the bad rate of violence in New York City. So I have this feeling, you know, it, you know, gun control is a tough argument to make in the best of times. When crime is very high and when violent crime is very high, I think it's much tougher to make the argument against uh, to support gun control or that ordinary citizens should not be allowed to own guns. And so I think um, I can't help but wonder if there are lots of other folks who are left of center who are watching violent crime occurring around them and suddenly saying, huh, maybe gun ownership isn't such a bad thing after all. Yeah, exactly right. And the op-ed, certainly in the excerpt we just talked about, hits on two key points. Uh, Self-defense is a right that we should have. And uh, by banning guns, the only people you're hurting are the law-abiding people, which is exactly uh, the main uh, arguments that uh, 
pro Second Amendment people have been making for a long time. Uh, I do hope that despite how uh, insane her reaction was to the Supreme Court decision on this last week, that Kathy Hochul will actually obey it and start issuing these permits without forcing people to show cause, not slow walk them. So people uh, who are, you know, no threats to anybody can can get their weapon and then protect themselves. The other thing I like here, Jim, I mean, I don't know anything about Laura Adkins other than what she wrote, and I don't know anything at all about uh, the partner. But can't you just imagine uh, this person who's frustrated with Laura Adkins opening up the New York Times <laughs> and seeing her saying, I'm getting a gun. And mm. uh, uh, hopefully that would be a pretty strong deterrent, too. I was going to say, yeah, that, that'd be a nice uh, uh, indicator that you, you know, I mean, my guess is somebody who's making maniacal threats against their former partner is not going to. I don't know if any, I don't know how easily deterred they are, but at minimum that should deter them and recognize this is not a helpless victim who you are have you know seem to be preying upon. Yeah, exactly right. Now, people that unstable might not be reading the New York Times op-ed pages, just uh, throwing it out there, but maybe they I, are. Greg, I was going to say the people who are reading the New York Times op-ed pages are unstable in a completely different way. <laughs> That's a far more accurate way to put it, I think. All right. Well, uh, a lot of people upset about the Supreme Court decisions on the left. And so they're vowing revenge through congressional action, through the midterms, and of course, 2024. Uh, And as we approach the midterms and the presidential election just a couple of years from now, I want to remind you that the Three Martini Lunch is brought to you in part again today by the Presidential Election Project. Imagine a scenario in 2024 that is similar to 2020 with a lot of questions about irregularities in votes and maybe even debates and recounts of votes in key states. Except this time, it's not Mike Pence, but it's Vice President Kamala Harris, who's being urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she would have the right to determine which electoral votes count. And why? Because the Electoral Count Act just isn't specific enough. The Presidential Election Project wants to see this changed. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com now to sign up and get updates. Learn more about this very important procedural ceremony and what steps Congress is taking to reform and clarify our electoral process. This project, uh, sorry, uh, three, two, one. Again, the project urges you to visit presidentialelectionproject.com and sign up to get updates so that by 2024, there is no question that Vice President Harris won't have the power to overturn those results. Presidential Election Project. The evidence is clear. More guns, less crime. So why is there a relentless push for more gun control? On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, I talk with Dr. John Lott of the Crime Prevention Research Center about why mass shootings occur and how telling the truth about guns got him fired and how the media are only interested in one side of this debate. Join us. Follow The Bill Walton Show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, on to our second good martini now. And once again, it's reaction to a Supreme Court decision. This one just came down yesterday. It was a good martini yesterday, where by a six to three majority, Chief Justice Roberts writing the majority opinion, uh, the court essentially telling regulatory agencies, in this case, specifically the EPA, uh, yeah, you don't get broad swath to make new policy. That's the job of Congress. And so oddly, you've got lots of members of Congress on the left howling in protest that they they have to do their job and that they actually have that power to do that. But nonetheless, the activists on the left, as it comes to climate, uh, 
are already thinking about packing up and leaving town, which is amazing, Jim, uh, with, uh, you know, Biden getting uh, elected and uh, the Democrats controlling the House and very narrowly the Senate. They thought they were going to get a lot of their wish list, especially with Build Back Better. Joe Manchin specifically killed that, but uh, there might have been other Democrats leery of that as well. And now with the Supreme Court decision tying the hands of the EPA, uh, looks like they're headed back to the states. Politico with the story, the climate advocates who cheered President Joe Biden's arrival at the White House last year are preparing to give up on Washington. Instead, environmentalists and many of their Democratic allies are starting to shift their focus to state capitals as the places to press for action on climate change, going back to a strategy they employed with some success uh, during the Trump era. The flight from D.C. is in large part a response to 18 months of frustration. Boy, that's a good martini right there. With major setbacks to Biden's climate agenda capped by Thursday's Supreme Court ruling that hobbled the EPA's authority to regulate uh, greenhouse gases. And so, uh, Jim, this is fantastic. Obviously, in some blue states, uh, they're probably going to get what they want. Uh, Other places in red states, they might be able to slow good policy down with legal challenges and so forth. But they really thought they were going to get a huge part of their wish list here in the early part of the Biden administration. And they got very little. And that is an awesome martini. It is. And what you're seeing here in this lament and this complaint, but also this declaration of a new strategy is a very quiet endorsement or embrace or maybe just just an acceptance of federalism. Right. If the voters of Rhode Island or California or, you know, some very deep blue state want to enact a whole bunch of environmental regulations that uh, industry doesn't like and that, say, will eliminate jobs and make energy more expensive and, and all that stuff. I in Virginia can say, you know, I don't think it's a good idea, but you guys try that. See how it works for you. Uh, I can't stop you living here in Virginia. I can only stop you if I move to your state, vote for the candidates that I want. I can try to get active in national groups or donate to your local state organizations and stuff. But on the other hand, you know, there's a part of me that feels like, you know, if you're um, you have to make competing interests of what you think is uh, most important. There are you know, as much as people would like to pretend that there is no trade off, that there is no. Um, inner, you know, in, innate conflict between, say, environmental regulations and the economy. Very, very often there is, or there is some other uh, consequence of that. And sometimes it, it goes, it splits in ways you may not expect. It's been kind of interesting. You know, most Republicans are perceived to be uh, right of center and uh, they like uh, industry and they like jobs and they like job creation and they don't like environmental regulations. They kind of, you know, chuckle at the greens and tree huggers and stuff like that. Most of the most of the Southeast is uh, heavily Republican, right? And yet, you look at states like Florida, South Carolina, uh, I believe Georgia, uh, I believe North Carolina as well. None of them permit uh, offshore oil drilling. You do get it off Texas, you do get it off uh, Louisiana, and I'm not sure about a couple of the other Gulf states. But basically, you don't really have uh, offshore drilling in the Atlantic. And you can find a lot of Republicans in Florida and Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina who don't want to see oil derricks off the Atlantic coast. Uh, they remember the everything from the Exxon Valdez to the Deepwater Horizon to all kinds of oil spills that have been very bad, not just for the wildlife, but because for the beaches. And pretty much, you know, from uh, Nags, from Virginia Beach all the way down to, you know, uh, Key West, the beaches are a big part of the economy. Tourism, people come to those beaches. And you have a, you know, a terrible oil spill there. That's going to shut down those beaches for a long stretch and be devastating for the economy. 
So those states have looked at that and said, you know what, our economy is really important that we not be doing drilling over there. You know, it was let those states make their decisions. Texas and Louisiana are like, wait a minute, there's a whole bunch of oil off the coast. We're going to do that. It's going to create jobs. and It's going to create prosperity here. I'm much more comfortable letting states make those decisions. So let's do that. And my sneaking suspicion is that you kind of already seen these sorts of complaints in California um, where how much, you know, environmental regulations, water usage, uh, development restrictions, the difficulty of building high rises in cities like San Francisco. They have all kinds of problems that are built on those kinds of regulations of, oh, we don't want to have those kinds of changes. Oh, we got to protect the snail darter, uh, all that kind of stuff. But you know what? I mean, you know, I, I like having a country where 50 states get to experiment. And if the state goes too far, Mike, I have faith that their voters will say, you know what? This is a bad idea. This is costing us jobs. We're being held back by this. We'll put new people in charge. I know I feel like they never go that way. And yeah, it's going to be very tough when you see, you know, it'll be a long time before you see this in California and New York. But uh, I, you know, I think most, most states have a pretty good sense about this. They can learn their lesson. They can elect uh, governors who are more, you know, economic productivity focused rather than uh, posing for environmental stances. And that's, that's probably the best way to handle these sort of things. So in a very strange way, good for you, environmental groups. You probably should have been paying more attention to state governments all along. Yeah, the reason they didn't is because the left kept getting what they wanted through the courts and through the administrative state instead of the way it should happen, which is uh, through the legislature. So why bother with uh, 50 different setups when you can just go to a Supreme Court that was probably going to lean your way for many years on these issues? And so what a lot of people on the right are pointing out is that the left is pulling their hair out right now. I mean, they're, they're calling the Supreme Court fascist, Jim. What they've basically done in these highest of profile cases is A, say that the the constitution means what it says on the second amendment courts should not do the job of the legislature on the abortion case and that the administrative state should not do the job of the uh, people that the the voters elected on on this stuff. So it's actually decentralizing power yet. The accusation is exactly the opposite. And if history teaches us anything, Greg, is that fascists were all about decentralizing power (laughs) and according to the people. Uh, no, I, you know, I, I, I've joked for a while now that fascism is a new synonym for I don't like this. Um, <laughs> rarely do you see a more vivid example of historical illiteracy than people calling the Supreme Court fascist. Just unbelievable. They just don't know what to do. They just don't know what to do. So let's get the legislative branch back this year, too, and then uh, see how they like that. Uh, all right. On to our next uh, sponsor. And that, of course, is my pillow. We love the sheets, love the towels, love the pillows themselves, of course. But my absolute favorite, the my slippers. And now you can save $90 on them. The blowout sale still going on regularly $139.98. But with our promo code martini at MyPillow.com, your blowout price just $49.98. Listeners, it took two years to develop the My Slippers exclusive four-tier cushioning system. You've got the My Pillow patented fill. You've got the Comfort Memory Foam, which helps prevent fatigue. You've got the patented Impact Gel, and you've got the indoor/outdoor sole. It means you can wear it inside, outside, wherever you like, all day long. These slippers are made with quality leather suede. They're available in a variety of styles, colors, and sizes. They're machine washable, and yes, they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. 
Go to MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 for the My Slippers at only $49.95. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the buy one, get one extravaganza on bed sheets, MyPillows, and more. Visit MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 today for the most comfortable slippers you'll ever own and get Mike's book for free. MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. All right, Jen, we just spent some time talking about climate and uh, energy policy. That also came up as uh, President Biden was exiting the NATO summit in Madrid yesterday. We played a couple of clips from him uh, as it related to the courts and the filibuster. Uh, But he also uh, took a couple of questions. And uh, this is where the second kudos to The New York Times comes in with Jim Tankersley asking, hey, how long do you expect the American people to be paying five bucks a gallon for gas? So here's the question. And Biden's let's just say less than compassionate answer. How long is it fair to expect American drivers and drivers around the world to pay that premium for this war? As long as it takes. So Russia cannot, in fact, defeat Ukraine and move beyond Ukraine. So, Jim, as, as we've explained over and over, but the president refuses to admit, at least publicly, gas prices were skyrocketing long before Russia was uh, uh, massing troops on the border of Ukraine. But he still tries to pretend that this is all entirely a result of Putin's actions uh, there, uh, but uh, basically his, eh, as long as it takes, uh, until Ukraine wins, which may never happen, uh, but uh, there may be a ceasefire at some point, uh, but what do you make of his answer and, and how he said it? It's terrible. Uh, <laughs> I, I suppose if you, I mean, you know, I think I was all pundit over hot air who said, Democrats 2022, just get used to it, uh, as their, their rallying cry or slogan. So, one, we, we've seen stretches of high gas prices in the past. Probably the worst was summer of 2008. Uh, obviously, I think that was a factor uh, in the in Barack Obama's victory in that year. Although, let's face it, I think the, the, you know, uh, the Great Recession, the Wall Street collapse, Lehman Brothers, all that kind of stuff, the housing bubble collapse, all of that in late 2008 was probably a more definitive factor. But it certainly wasn't helping the incumbent party when gas prices were at that then an all-time high. Well, now they're at all-time highs again. Just check AAA. Uh, although they probably was like, the, the all-time high was about two weeks ago. It's down about a dime, maybe 15 cents, depending on where you are in the country. That's a little bit of a, a break or an improvement, but it's obviously not one that's going to make uh, that much of a difference in how people feel. You're paying nationally averaging about 501, and now you're in the 486, 487, stuff like that range. It's not that much of an improvement. And so, I mean, you know, partially because of savings and all kinds of other things, you know, Americans are, they're getting by okay. They're, they're hanging on, but you know, all kinds of economic indicators suggest people are just eating through their savings right now. That's the only thing that's keeping them from having to choose between gas and food. And, you know, can they afford to go to work to earn the money to pay the higher grocery bills? And, and, you know, this actually just worsening and worsening economic squeeze. So it's safe to say, if, dear listeners, if you or I or Greg was in the Oval Office, we'd be doing a lot of things differently. But what's very, very strange is that with Biden, it's not just that it's bad. Like the problem with, you know, blaming Russia and, you know, ultimately Biden yesterday was describing ultimately the reason why gas prices up is because of Russia, 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 Russia. Now, Greg, when I hear him talking like that, I'm reminded of the Brady Bunch. <laughs> Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Russia, Russia, Russia. Um, But I don't think like scapegoating somebody else is really at best a temporary solution because you're still stuck with, you know, close to $5 a gallon gas. Oh, by the way, you know, we're coming into 4th of July weekend, Independence Day. Happy Independence Day in advance, listeners. 
you know, this is usually around peak American vacation time. You know, people start loading up the car, driving across the country, going to the beach, going to the mountains, going to the lake house or something, visiting Aunt Edna, whatever they want to, whatever you, however you spend your summer, usually this month and next month are the peak months for, for gasoline demand. Now, maybe some of this decline uh, in the last couple of weeks or so, and I meant, again, very small decline, maybe decline, maybe demand is reducing. Maybe people are saying, you know what, we just can't afford it anymore. We're not going to drive on our usual beach excursion or something like that. Um, because, you know, I assume people aren't taking airline tickets because they haven't gotten any cheaper because airline fuel is also much more expensive than it was a year ago. So maybe there's a little bit of a drop in the decline and maybe come fall, you'll have a further decline in, in demand. But again, you can't really count on that being the sort of factor that's going to bring it down a dollar, two dollars, three dollars. Biden has proposed suspending the federal gas tax and urging states to suspend their taxes. He says that could bring prices down by a dollar. You know, you and I have talked about this on that podcast. This is kind of gimmicky. And oh, by the way, if you do it for three months, it kicks back in right around like mid-September. That's not going to work. <laughs> that's you know, That just puts you back where you started from. The only way that you really reduce prices is if you increase supply. The only way to increase supply, you've got to increase uh, refinery capacity. And that is very hard because you've had more than a million barrels of, of refinery capacity taken offline since before the pandemic. Ironically, the Biden administration apparently reached out to a bunch of the oil refinery operators saying, hey, those ones you shut down, could you switch them back? And the answer was for at least four of them was, no, we're switching them to biofuels processing facility because you've been indicating to us you didn't want us refining oil anymore. Since the moment you took office, you've been telling us that you're going to phase out fossil fuels. Don't get mad at us for doing what you told us to do. And uh, I can only imagine how those conversations went. I'm sure that Jennifer Granholm was just cheery and happy. Um, so all in all, that's the only thing you can do. You can't count on the Russia-Ukraine war ending anytime soon. Uh, it sounds like OPEC either is at capacity for production or it is not interested in expanding capacity for production. Um, you just don't have, you know, you, I, you know, we're talking about, oh, let's get more from Venezuela. Also, oh, by the way, even if you get more access to crude, you do not, you know, you still need the refinery capacity. So you are really, you know, unless you're willing to say, I'm going to revive, I, I, this clearly isn't working. You're okay, fossil fuel industries. We know we want to reduce um, uh, greenhouse emissions. We're going to do it by going to clean natural gas. We're not going to do as much coal, but by and large, clearly gasoline and oil is one of the things that makes the American economy run. We cannot function for long stretches if gasoline is $5 a gallon. I'm going to do what I can to help U.S. production. I'm going to help, do what I can to help the expansion of refinery capacity. We are going to be a country that still uses gasoline for a while, even though I want to electrify electric vehicles for the you know, federal vehicle fleet and all that kind of stuff. Biden would have to concede, you know what, U.S. oil companies, you are not the enemy. We are to pay, you play an important role that really can't be easily replaced. Solar and wind are not going to replace you anytime soon. It wouldn't hurt to make a nice sales pitch for nuclear power as well. And you'd accept that. And that might bring down gas prices. There'd be all of a sudden every oil industry, aha, okay, the government's not going to try to shut us down. There's, a, there's worth it to start making these investments that are going to take five years to pay off or 10 years to pay off. And then maybe you'd be in this better situation. Biden's pl I, people, Matt Continetti has a good column out and he's making this observation. Biden never seems to have any plan because you know, he said, let's reduce the gas tax. Well, no state's doing that. In fact, California today, they just increased another three cents. Right. So what do you want to do, Mr. President? You wanted this job. You wanted this responsibility. What's your plan? Sounds like the plan is to go to Camp David for the weekend, Greg. <laughs> yes. You know, the maddening part here 
is that all Biden really had to do to avoid this crisis is absolutely nothing. When he came into office, everything was doing fine. Yeah. Uh, Roll out the vaccines and let the American economy thrive. And you know, yeah, energy and energy independence. Let the pipeline continue. Let the leases keep going. Let the permits keep going. All he had to do was leave it alone, and he couldn't do that. And now he's uh, paying the price for it. It's going to result, hopefully, in um, in, a, in a major wave this fall. But the pain being inflicted on the American people that's completely unnecessary is just infuriating. Well, I mean, okay, as Biden did uh, did say, it isn't as painful. Oh, I'm sorry, I stand corrected. It wasn't Biden. It was uh, Bloomberg. Bloomberg News quote: "The surge in gas prices isn't as painful as it looks." Oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> July first, 2022. Robert Burgess. Yeah. It isn't economically debilitating for the average consumer. You're doing fine, gas consumers. Stop whining. That's a message from Bloomberg. Would he yell around in the newsroom to a bunch of people who take to who take the subway to work? Hey, how's no. the gas prices affecting you? It doesn't because no, no, I don't right. have a car. He, he asked Mike Bloomberg how he's doing. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Look, when gas prices for my limousine are high, I just reach into the petty cash drawer and pull out a few extra thousand and everything's fine. <laughs> Amazing. Jim, uh, we need uh, a lengthy weekend and no better way to... Uh, come up with a reason for that than to celebrate the birth of our country. We will have a special episode of the Three Martini Lunch on Monday, so we hope you make that part of your holiday plans, and then we'll be back with our regular fare on Tuesday, July 5th. So uh, have a fantastic uh, July 4th weekend, Jim, and I'll talk to you uh, officially on Monday, but for real on Tuesday. (laughs) Talk to you on Tuesday, or maybe Monday, Greg. We'll see. Jim Garrity of uh, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. We are so, so grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Those really do help us out a lot with search engine optimization. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific 4th of July weekend and a happy Independence Day. And again, join us on Monday for our special edition. And on Tuesday, we're back to our usual format on the Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. I think it's important to remember that such Stalinist show trials are partially about persecuting political opponents and putting them in prison, but they're also about covering up crimes or covering up real stories. And so I have found it really interesting how the committee is engaged in a cover up of what happened in the in the 2020 election. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 